0: This is TanakhCast. Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 34, Numbers, chapters 8 through 11. Chapter 8 begins with the specific instructions about the lamp wicks of the menorah, the material needed for its construction as well as its floral motif and design. Then, God goes on to explain about the purification of the Levites. Like swimmers or bicyclists, they are to shave off all of their body hair and scrub their clothes before being sprinkled with the water of chatat. And then, once a chatat offering has been made, they are to gather en masse before the people of Israel and the tent of appointment, and there is to be a mass laying on of hands. First the people on the Levites, then the Levites on to bulls, who are then offered up to God. The Levites thus belong to God and does every firstborn, be it human or animal, but as verse 18 recounts, God only claims the Levites as a proxy for all the firstborn, and the Levites are to serve on behalf of all of Israel in the tent of dwelling from the age of 25 to 50, where they retire with a pension with a guaranteed return. Chapter 9 tells of the commandment to offer the Korban Pesach, the second official Pesach observance, and of the case of some men who had become tameh due to contact with a corpse and could not offer up. These men petition Moshe, who has to consult with God, about what to do, and God tells Moshe to tell them that they have an extension until the 14th day of the second month, but like those offered on the 14th of the first month, the Korban Pesach must be consumed down to the last bite before morning. If not, the same rules about eating everything, etc. also apply to a sojourner who happens to be in town during Pesach. Then chapter 9 recounts how Israel knew when it would be time to pack up and continue on with their desert sojourn. During the day, the dwelling was covered by a cloud, and at night it would be haloed with fire. If daybreak came and there was no cloud, it was a sign that folks should pack up, and when they came upon the cloud again, it was understood that they were to stop and encamp. Chapter 10 continues with more tool time. This time, two silver trumpets, which are to be used with varying blasts to muster the leaders, to give marching orders, to gather people at the entrance to the tent of appointment, to remind God that the people are about to go off in a fight and that God should deliver them from their enemies, or to celebrate holy days as a musical accompaniment to near offerings. Chapter 10 concludes with Israel on the march, and Moshe pleading with his father-in-law to join the Jews on their trek to the Promised Land. When Yitro demurs, Moshe urges him to stay because Yitro knows all the good camping spots in the Sinai, which these days are few and far between. So they continue marching with the Aron HaKodesh out in front on a three-day cloud-accompanied jaunt to look for a good place to encamp. Moshe would precede the Aron and say, Arise to attack, O Adonai, that your enemies may scatter and those who hate you may flee before you, which would surely scare the hell out of anyone witnessing this procession. And when the Aron would be set down and the marching would cease, Moshe would, would say, Return, O Adonai, you of the myriad divisions of Israel. Incidentally, Jews today recite these verses when the first when the Torah is taken out of the ark to be read and the second when the Torah is returned. Chapter 11 recounts how the Jews revert to forum and begin to kvetch and how God's anger literally flares up and begins to burn the fringes of the camp. The Jews cry out to Moshe who intercedes, and the fire stop, but before the smell of smoke works its way out of their clothes, The gathered riffraff, the of Rav, begin to kvetch and moan about the cravings for meat and their want for water and how they have grown to hate the taste of mine, Bleh, 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 bleh. Well, Moshe hears all the kvetching and wailing, and he feels God's seething anger, so he turns to God and says, What did I ever do to you that you would punish me with these people? I've had it. I can't do this anymore. So God, sensing that Moshe might do something rash, or at least he might be pretending to be at the point of doing something rash, tells Moshe to settle down and that he'll empower 70 elders to help carry the weight. And as for the Kvetching Jews, God will provide them with meat, so much meat that it will come out of their noses. But where are the flocks from where this meat will come? Moshe asks. God testily replies, really? That's what you're worried about? So God comes down in a cloud, empowers and inspirits the 70 elders, but apparently the spirit overflows to infuse two men who remained in the camp. Eldad and Medad begin to act like prophets in the camp, and when word comes to Moshe about this, how two men are potentially usurping Moshe's role, Yehoshua urges Moshe to contain them. Moshe replies, I wish everyone was like a prophet, then I could finally have some rest around here. And then God provides quail, buckets and buckets and buckets of quail. But God is not done. On top of the people learning their lesson from the explosion of meat, God never misses an opportunity to smite them with, quote, an exceedingly great striking. So, there's a lot to talk about this week. Let's get to it. In an earlier episode, episode 18 to be precise, author Michael Wex talked about kvetching. And here we find it again in spades. You have the basic vetch. And the counter kvetch. But what else is there to say about Jews and kvetching besides that we do a lot of it? What I really want to talk about this week is the Korban Pesach, and how something so central to the observance of a pilgrimage festival then later on became one of six props on a Seder plate and and one of the weaker props at that, and how some folks are trying to bring it back to the future. In Jewish tradition, there is a constant tension between conservation with a lowercase c and innovation, I guess, with a lowercase i. I considered this tension extensively in End of the Jews, Radical Breaks, Remakes, and What Comes Next, available where all fine e-books are sold, and the thesis that stands at at the center of my book continues to sally forth. In fact, one could say that the notorious Pew Research Center's A Portrait of Jewish Americans is really just one long addendum to my book, essentially delivering the data for all 'all y'all data-driven folk in support of my central argument. And here it is. Or perhaps more appropriately, that's the sound of a Kindle.
1: Jewish history is long and vivid, and it records many radical breaks and remakes. Practically every aspect of Jewish life including the way in which Jews worship and consider themselves as a people in the world, as well as the social, political and economic circumstances in which they live, has varied and changed dramatically over the past 3,500 years. Crisis has generally driven the change, catalyzing a radical break from past notions of worship, peoplehood and identity. Why did crises in the Jewish past require a radical break? Would Jewish survival have been compromised had the Jewish people only made a small break with past assumptions, practices and thinking? I argue that, though some tenaciously clung to the old ways, the severity of each crisis compelled most Jews to radically break with their past. These radical breaks could have easily resulted in the end of the Jews. And yet the Jews have survived, with a chain of tradition intact, but not because of ossifying that tradition, clinging desperately to older forms of worship or applying ever stricter, more exclusionary interpretations of Jewish law. The Jews survived by remaking themselves. So, the Korban Pesach used to be the
0: tentpole event for the Pesach holiday. originally commanded an exodus as an observance in Egypt before the exodus. What Jews observed after the exodus is referred to in the rabbinic literature as Pesach Dorot, or Pesach of the Generations, which is the Pesach observance discussed in this week's portion. Numbers 9, as I said before, was the second observance of Pesach, meaning it happened one year after the initial exodus. Korban Pesach is arguably the most frequently portrayed mitzvah in the Tanakh. We read about the initial Korban offering in Egypt and the use of the blood to mark the lintel and doorposts. We have our current account. There's another in the book of Joshua, chapter 5, the book of 2 Kings, chapter 23, and also in 2 Chronicles, chapters 30 and 35. Ezra's offering up of the Korban Pesach after the return to Zion from Babylonian exile is also described in some detail in Ezra, chapter 6. So, here's how it was done, and and this is elaborated upon in the eponymous tractate of the Mishnah, entitled P'sachim. First, you have to get together a posse of Pesach eaters. You can pick from any Jew, including women Jews, or Canaanite slaves, old Jews, sick Jews, or Jews in mourning. You can't pick an uncircumcised person or someone who can't eat a small olive-sized portion of meat from the Korban. As they say,
1: No vegan diet, no vegan powers!
0: So, Meat-loving posse, in effect? Check. Second, make sure that the korban is big enough so everyone in the posse can eat a small, olive-sized portion of meat. What kind of meat, do you say? Lamb. And that lamb should be whole, as in without blemish or defect, and younger than a year in age. Third, when it's time to offer up, you and the rest of the near-offerers should go to the temple with your lamb. You don't need the whole posse, just the near-offerer. According to Josephus's The Jewish War, three million people attended to the temple to near-offer and pilgrim in 65 CE. However, most historians place the number somewhere between 300,000 to 500,000. But considering that Jerusalem's present-day population numbers around 800,000, even the lowball number from 65 CE is pretty impressive. After the lamb is slaughtered, which, by the way, can be done by a non-kohen, the blood is brought to the kohen, which is then poured into a special tool designed to spray the blood on the slaughter site. Afterwards, the lamb carcass is hung on a hook. Is this getting a bit graphic? No vegan diet, no vegan powers! Anyway, to make a long story short, all of the essential elements of the Korban Pesach are temple-based. The only thing that does not involve the temple or temple staff is the eating of the korban. So, when the temple was destroyed by the soldiers of Titus Flavius Vespasianus in August of 70 CE, the surviving religious leadership had to figure out, and quick, what to do without a temple. And this question of the Korban Pesach was probably somewhere in the upper third of a very long list of concerns, especially as Pesach is one of the three big pilgrimage festivals now without a pilgrimage destination. And of the many options before the surviving rabbis, They could have easily chosen to forego anything and everything related to the temple, especially after the second and even greater tragedy of the failed Bar Kokhba revolt three generations later. Instead, the rabbis extended the idea that God could be encountered outside sacred confines to embrace the notion that God could be encountered even without sacred confines. They were also forced to create new religious practices, but demonstrated either through proof text or traditional practice that the new practice was really an analog for the old one. There is nothing more consoling, after all, and comforting than continuity in the face of crisis and radical break. And Pesach is an especially good case study, as the Torah prescribes a korban Pesach that has both a domestic and public component. And it wasn't as if there were no alternatives to temple offerings throughout the period leading up to the temple's destruction. There is much archaeological and epigraphic evidence of gathering places where Jews would congregate to pray together or study Torah. In other words, what we would call synagogues and yeshivas existed concurrent with the temple. And, incidentally, there was a second temple, that is, another temple in Elephantine, an island in the Nile River in northern Nubia, which today is part of the modern city of Aswan in southern Egypt, where sacrifices were also offered to God with the tacit approval of the priests in Jerusalem until its destruction in 411 BCE.
1: I don't believe this guy!
0: It's true. Yep, it's true. It is. It is. You can look it up in my book later. So, when the temple was destroyed... The shift away from Korban Pesach to what would become the Seder, though traumatic for many, was not as precedent-breaking as one might think, which is testament to the subtlety and sensitivity of the rabbis who created the Seder tradition. The Torah, after all, describes the Pesach meal at home, a meal whose traditions were so evocative that it elicited numerous questions from the children coupled with the commandment to recount the story of the Exodus in the context of that meal, as well as the commandments to eat matzah and maror, the bitter herbs, you already have a proto-seder in place just from biblical sources alone. Add to that a reference in the extra-canonical book of Jubilees, which mentions the drinking of wine and the praising of God during the meal, and you're almost there. A quick read of the 10th chapter in Mishnah Psachim will get you much of the rest of the way to what we would recognize today as a Pesach Seder. And in the 21st century, we've added masks and finger puppets of the 10 plagues and the figures in the Chagad song. and some folks even add an orange to the Seder plate alongside the Korban Pesach proxy, otherwise known as the shank bone, the maror or bitter herbs, the chazeret or bitter vegetable the sweet haroset paste that stands in for the mortar, the egg, the karpas, or vegetable to be dipped in salt water. (laughs) Yes, an orange. Now, Now why an orange, you're wondering? Well, in the early 1980s, Jewish feminists began to add an orange to the Seder plate in response to a rabbi who apparently told a young girl that a woman on the bima is like an orange on the Seder plate. However, though this exchange between the rabbi and the little girl has never been proven to be apocryphal, folks continue to add an orange and have since imbued different meanings to the fruit, such as it being a symbol of the fruitfulness of all Jews, including women and LGBT folk. But as much as we have, shall we say, evolved from a cultic center, sacrifice-based religion into something more cosmopolitan, the 21st century has also seen the return, albeit slightly, of some ancient traditions in their past glory. With the Jewish state in the land of Israel as a fait accompli, and with us now approaching five decades of Jewish sovereignty over the Temple Mount, a not small number of Jews have been working now for over a decade toward reviving the practice of Korban Pesach. This is perhaps less surprising than the fact that for over a decade, a not small number of rabbis have met as part of a reconstituted Sanhedrin, which has been meeting weekly since 2004 to legislate on religious matters for the whole of the Jewish people. I was not aware of that. The Sanhedrin, from the Greek word synedrion, which means sitting together, hence assembly, first appears in the books of Josephus as a court that judges and condemns, and the New Testament describes three trials before the Sanhedrin and presided over by the high priest. But it's the Mishnah that describes the workings of the Sanhedrin at the local and federal level, otherwise known as the Great Sanhedrin. In short, the Great Sanhedrin, which met in the confines of the temple, was the supreme political, religious, and judicial body. But after the destruction of the temple, the Great Sanhedrin relocated to Yavne, and over the next three centuries, its powers were incrementally curtailed, and with the adoption of the Hebrew calendar in 358 CE, the Patriarchate was subsequently dissolved. Until 2004 when the Sanhedrin Initiative joined with other Jewish millenarian groups in encouraging Jews to reinstate the Korban Pesach. A symbolic sacrifice was offered up on Kivat Hanania, a hill that overlooks the Temple Mount from Jerusalem's Abu Tor neighborhood, where they slaughtered the goat on site and used a two-meter tall cone-shaped oven to roast the meat. Since then, there have been numerous legal attempts to attain permits to offer up the Korban Pesach, on the Temple Mount itself. And each time, the Israeli High Court, though acknowledging the right of Jews to ascend to the Temple Mount, rejected the petition on security grounds. You can read the full Sanhedrin Initiative position at their website, and I'll provide the link at the thenextjew.com and at the Facebook page. So, what sense can one make of this? The same sense, I suppose, of the hymn that accompanies the return of the Torah scroll to the Ark, another tradition that evolved out of the need to remake. It comes from Echa, the Book of Lamentations, chapter 5, verse 21. Adonai Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Now I understand the sentiment expressed here. The conservative with lowercase c wish to luxuriate in ancient traditions from the good old days, the old-timey religion, nostalgia for the way things used to be, but what I still puzzle over is the entreaty to renew our days as of old. How can one renew our days of old? Doesn't the act of renewing make it new? The root for chadesh is chadash, which means new. The dictionary intimates something else in its definition, explaining that renew involves resuming something after an interruption, which would definitely apply to the Temple Institute or the Sanhedrin Initiative. But what are the other connotations for the word renew? Can the days of old, be it a ritual sacrifice or an ancient high court, be treated like a library book that you can just keep for three more weeks? Gathering to offer up and eat the Korban Pesach or preside over questions of Jewish law is a collective action taking place in the world. It involves people and their feelings And once it happens, it is by definition brand new, as it never existed before within its particular context and that moment in time, which today involves 1.6 billion Muslims and their feelings, and the Israeli Supreme Court and their feelings, and security and political concerns, and Twitter and Facebook and the singularity. Despite protestations otherwise, the effort to renew the Korban Pesach and reinstate the Sanhedrin is not an attempt to roll back the odometer, because unless you're Superman, you just can't roll it back. Hi, it is forbidden
1: for you to interfere with one thing I do know, son, and that is you are here for a reason.
0: Korban Pesach 2.0 and the Sanhedrin Initiative create a new reality under the guise of the old. It's a sheep in sheep's clothing, which, in the end, is just a sheep. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at TheNextJew.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud, and while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. You're invited to come back and join us next week-ish. For episode 35 on the book of Numbers, chapters 12 through 15, with special guest, Temma Smith.
1: Y'all come back now. Here.